Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Homecoming podcast. Homecoming is a platform that provides the space for Asians, Asian Americans, and mixed heritage Asians of all backgrounds to share their stories, experiences, and insights about a variety of different topics. Everything from intergenerational trauma to international politics to interracial solidarity. I'm your host, Angel Rena, and we just started season two a few weeks ago, so go check out those episodes on Affirmative Action and the South Asian Youth Initiative if you haven't yet, and also make sure to subscribe and follow Homecoming on social media at HomecomingPod so you're ready for future episodes. So today's episode is really important because, as you already know from the title, it's about COVID-19. And when we recorded this episode in early January, there were over 85 million cases of and over 1.8 million deaths from the coronavirus in the world. And just in the United States, over 20.6 million cases and 350,000 deaths. I first wanted to extend a very, very big thank you to all of the staffers and workers at hospitals and clinics around the world who have been putting their lives at risk every day to save others. And I'm also thinking of all of you who've had friends, uh, family members, and loved ones pass away from the virus as well. Um, please, please, everyone who's listening, uh, cases of the coronavirus are rapidly increasing. So whether or not you have been personally impacted by the virus, please have some empathy and do your part to slow the spread. Do things like wear a mask, social distance, wash your hands frequently, things that public health officials have been telling us for a while now. Um, these aren't just numbers. These are real human beings um, who are dying and, and contracting the virus. So please make sure that you keep all of this in mind as we wait for the vaccine to be distributed. But because all of us have been affected to different degrees by the virus and the pandemic, and there is a lot of waiting and uncertainty that people may have, I wanted to bring an expert onto the podcast to answer questions. Someone who has been directly involved in national and global efforts to combat COVID-19. So that is why today I am joined by Dr. Saad Omer, who is the director of the Yale Institute for Global Health, a professor of medicine at the Yale School of Medicine, and the Susan Dwight Bliss Professor of Epidemiology of Microbial Diseases at the Yale School of Public Health. Dr. Omer's research portfolio includes epidemiology of respiratory viruses such as influenza, RSV, and COVID-19, trials to evaluate drug regimens to reduce mother-to-child transmission of HIV, and interventions to increase immunization coverage and acceptance. He has served on several advisory panels, including the U.S. National Vaccine Advisory Committee and the World Health Organization Expert Advisory Group for Healthcare Worker Vaccination. And more recently, he has been a critical member of the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine's Committee on Equitable Allocation of Vaccine for the Novel Coronavirus and the WHO's Strategic Advisory Group of Experts on Immunization, also known as SAGE, Working Group on COVID-19 Vaccines. And both of these groups have assisted the CDC and the NIH in devising their COVID-19 uh, vaccine allocation system here in the U.S. 
And today, Dr. Omer is going to answer some questions about COVID-19 in the U.S. and around the world, how he and others came up with the vaccine allocation system, uh, and why he considers it equitable, the new strain of the coronavirus, and how all of us will be impacted by the pandemic years down the road. And some of the questions were submitted by people on social media, so thank you so much to everyone who did so. Uh, also, a quick note before we get into, you know, the questions and the introductions, I just wanted to say that this episode was recorded in early January, and it will be released late January. So in those span of, you know, two to three weeks, things may have drastically changed. But Dr. Omer, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast today. I know you're a very busy person, and I've got a bunch of questions uh, prepared for you. So thank you again for giving your time today to be on the podcast. Um, first, I'll allow you to introduce yourself to the listeners, and you can say things like your name, pronouns, a profession where you work, education and training, organizations you're a part of, ethnic background, and really anything you want to share with the listeners. Well, um, I'm the director of Yale Institute for Global Health. I did uh, my medical training. I went to med school in Pakistan, came to the U.S., uh, and did my um, Ph.D. and master's um, at Johns Hopkins um, in global epidemiology. I was a faculty member there, then went to Emory University, was there for 10 years, then was recruited uh, to Yale uh, as the director of Yale Institute for Global Health. I'm, a, I'm jointly tenured and appointed in uh, the School of Medicine, where I'm a professor of uh, medicine in the section of infectious diseases, as well as um, uh, I'm a professor of epidemiology of microbial diseases at the School of uh, Public Health. Amazing. Thank you so much. Uh, so first question, Dr. Omer, uh, for people out there who are interested in careers in public health, medicine, and medical research, and just want to know what steps you took to get where you are today, how did your interest in medicine, infectious diseases, and epidemiology begin? That's a, that's a good question. So I went to med school in Pakistan, and I was fortunate to have uh, good mentors. Um, a couple of them actually went from the CDC um, and got interested in public health. Um, and then more um, specifically, um, we had, um, you know, my initial, the group where I started working with um, at Hopkins, the serendipity was that he was working uh, my mentor was working on vaccines. So that's uh, where my interest in vaccines started. And and so that has led to um, a two-decade-long career on vaccines. My work on public health and global health has been longer than that. Great. All right. So let's get right into the questions about COVID-19 because we have a lot of them. So this first one is a two-parter. So how does COVID-19 and this pandemic compare to previous viruses and pandemics? And do you think that people like government officials and medical experts actually learned and implemented lessons from previous public health emergencies this time around? That's, a, that's again, a good question. Um, obviously, there is a body of knowledge that accumulated over the years. This is not the first pandemic, first large, large outbreak uh, that the field of public health is seeing. Of course, the scale and impact 
um, of this pandemic, especially in a short period of time, has been substantial and substantially higher in magnitude compared to all of a lot of the other recent outbreaks and even pandemics. But we learned a lot. We learned from um, from the 1918 pandemic um, as a field. Um, the other um, aspect of this was we had um, an H1N1 pandemic um, in 2009-2010. It was a respiratory illness pandemic, uh, and that taught a lot of lessons to us, although the, uh, the virus was really widespread, but it wasn't as lethal as uh, this uh, virus. And so therefore, um, we had less of a social impact and less of an impact in terms of actual mortality. Uh, but we did uh, learn several lessons in terms of how uh, developing vaccines and so on and so forth. There was a lot of technology that you are seeing uh, and a lot of focus on immunology actually came as a result of investments in HIV research. That's another ongoing pandemic that we have. Um, uh, so um, that's another um, you know, thing to think about. Uh, in terms of how we learned um, our lessons and how the investments in technology and, and biological sciences is paying dividends. And then there was this um, awareness after Ebola that all of this science has evolved. Uh, there have been investment in the so-called platform technologies uh, that actually came about um, after there was an, a scare of h fund. Uh, not, not just after that, but what? But another event in the sequence was 2005, 2006 um, um, scare. In a sense, it was a real scare of another strain uh, of a strain of uh, influenza H5N1 uh, becoming um, a substantial pandemic that did not pan out, but it had um, people on alert. And then the world realized that we need to be better prepared for these kinds of respiratory disease pandemics. And so there was investment in so-called platform technologies like uh, mRNA technology uh, and um, uh, viral vector technology, where we take a virus and insert a protein um, on top of it. Uh, and that serves as a, a vaccine itself, because the virus is, uh, is itself is less, uh, it doesn't cause disease. Uh, but you insert a vaccine on top of this, uh, a, a protein on top of it, um, that evokes an immune response. So that was the AstraZeneca and Oxford vaccine came from that technology. The mRNA vaccine technology led to the Moderna and Pfizer vaccine. So all of that uh, happened in a milieu of previous outbreaks, etc. Another watershed event was the Ebola outbreak, which was relatively recent. Um, uh, and that told us that we are vaccine development enterprise was too slow to respond to a real uh, large outbreak of major consequences. Um, and, and so therefore, um, we are... Um, so, so Ebola outbreak uh, made the, the global community realize that we need to develop a system where we can uh, evaluate these vaccines quickly so that led to this global entity called CEPI, um, uh, Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness uh, Innovations, that is leading uh, vaccine development, uh, a lot of vaccine development at the global scale, domestically, 
there was this recognition after Ebola that we need to speed up our processes, etc. So all of that fed into um, our approaches to this pandemic. So, so do you think countries like the U.S. were prepared for the pandemic, for this COVID-19 pandemic? Yes and no. So some of the systems were prepared. Uh, our vaccine development system was better prepared. Uh, the fact that we had some overall testing technology available, uh, although it was not deployed, and I'll come to deployment, um, that was uh, sort of uh, that was a good thing that we had in this country. But it wasn't the failure of science, uh, and by all objective measures, uh, our response to vaccination has been, our response to this pandemic, uh, not vaccination, but our response to this pandemic has been suboptimal, but it hasn't been a failure of strategy. It hasn't been a failure of, or overall scientific strategy. It hasn't been a failure of scientific tools. It has been a failure of operations. It has been a failure of governance, how we have deployed this. Korea had the same tools at its disposal. It did much better than us. Japan had a much older population, and so that means much more vulnerable population. It did better than us. New Zealand, okay, you can say New Zealand is a sort of a smaller country and an island, but you know we are orders of magnitude worse off than a lot of these examples. And so therefore, it wasn't a failure of our ability to uh, marshal scientific tools. Um, it was a failure at the operational level, at the level of governance. Right. And that actually leads really nicely to this next question. So we know from the facts, from the numbers, that the U.S. isn't doing too great in terms of the number of COVID cases and the number of COVID deaths uh, compared to other countries in the world. So in your opinion, why is the U.S. doing this poorly and what could they have been what could they have done or be doing better right now? to combat the virus? So we, so the countries should be doing better uh, by... So what we could have done differently. So let's step back. First of all, we shouldn't have starved uh, the vaccine uh, and public health system so much. Um, we shouldn't have starved our health departments of resources uh, over the last 10, 12 years. So that's one thing. And we should not never let that happen. We have been in a boom and bust cycle of investments in uh, public health. And um, and so we give a bolus of money when there is Ebola at our doors. Um, but we then starve our health departments of resources, even basic resources, uh, when we don't have um, an imminent emergency. So we need to increase the baseline level of the our engagement uh, and in our investments in the public health system at the level of, uh, you know, not just federally in terms of CDC, but also local and state health departments. So that's one thing that we should have done differently and we could do differently. The second thing was that we in we didn't have a scientist-led response. I, I'm perfectly in a democracy. The ultimate accountability is to elected leaders, which is perfectly reasonable. But there shouldn't be leading the technical response. Um, and so so that's 
the um, the other thing we did wrong at the, at the big picture level. In terms of s- several steps, um, we as a country made even basic stuff like masking a political issue and became a, 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 an issue of individual identity, uh, of one's values. That didn't have to happen. There are countries that are equally polarized or have um, all sorts of views on personal freedoms that were able to have a national consensus on this, that that didn't have to happen. Uh, we didn't have, for example, when we had started to control the virus, we didn't um, go in and finish the job. We opened up prematurely in a few places. And once you let it out, the whole country gets submerged in, in, the, in, in the virus. Uh, and, and so those kinds of things, specific and big picture, didn't serve us well. Great, thank you so much for providing those insights. And and do you, and do you feel like also this sort of back and forth on behalf of the CDC, for example, also contributed to this? Because I was reading articles. You know, we all know that the CDC like originally deemed mask wearing unnecessary, and then they flipped back on that. So look. Like, um, that. Yeah. So, so there are two ways of looking at it. One is uh, at the beginning of the outbreak, there wasn't the evidence to support a recommendation. The evidence evolved. Uh, the consensus evolved. The risk-benefit uh, ratios evolved. Um, and then we reached a consensus. Um, and so CDC, I don't blame the CDC. This is how science evolves, that you accumulate evidence and, and, and was would, ha- would have been in, intransigent of the CDC to not recommend masks. And so CDC, uh, you know, we need to recognize that CDC's uh, position evolved not out of, uh, you know, anything whimsical. It evolved because the evidence and the synthesis of evidence suggested that we should move in that direction. So that's one thing. But the bigger question is, why did we not have evidence at the beginning of this outbreak? And that points to the way science is funded in this country, the way trials are funded in this country. Um, and, and why did we not have randomized control trials of mask uh, behavior um, at the beginning of this outbreak? Uh, and so that's those are the things that would require some introspection. Because often we are enamored by uh, sort of high-end technology, but not public health measures and doing those kinds of trials. So we will have to shift years and and start investing in those kinds of things that could have substantial impact and generating high quality evidence around that as well. Right. And I think, you know, that has also been a sort of consistent messaging uh, for people to just try to listen to science and, you know, the public health experts and doctors and researchers who actually know what they're doing. And, you know, I also understand that this is like an unprecedented time and people are trying to learn as they go. But also, like, I do agree that uh, this should be part of a larger conversation about how science and medical research is funded in the U.S. Um, And for listeners who don't know much about, like, the history of uh, U.S. research um, and government funding for research, like, there's also a very storied and racialized history there um, that I personally learned in a course last semester so um for people who don't know too much like there is a very racialized history in terms of you know u.s clinical trials and um, research 
activities uh, within the country, but also, you know, that U.S. researchers led in other countries. So definitely encourage you all to look up um, and do more research and um, look more into that. Um, but it seems like we have time to ask another quick question I've been wondering about. And you kind of mentioned this a bit ago um, when you were talking about like mask wearing and individual identity. So I live in a place like Missouri, right? And the place I live in is quite conservative. People don't want to wear masks. Like people don't wear masks even when there was a mandate. So what do you have to say to people who claim that 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 it's their freedom or liberty to not wear a mask or social distance, etc. Well, American concept, and I say that as an immigrant who has thought through this, so whose um, decision to become an American was very deliberate. So the American social contract is not um, a social contract based on selfishness. It's a contract that includes liberty. Uh, it includes freedom, but it also includes freedom from disease. It also says that you don't get to decide whether my grandmother lives or dies based on the community infection risk because a few people have misconceptions about um about you know masks etc or who refuse to wear a mask uh, so that also says uh, that, uh, that 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 we as a country uh, has have a collective responsibility to to make sure uh, that the the freedom to live uh, is preserved uh, by actions and, and masking is not a uh, limiting your ability to move or restrict uh, severely. It is asking you to make sure that you're wearing a mask in specific situations um, when you are in close proximity uh, of uh, of others. So, so, so think about, that's the way to think about this. Uh, it is not against um, the basic values of freedom and liberty and, and so on and so forth. And do you think like the same argument of freedom and, and liberty will also take place when we think about um, mandatory vaccinations? Because I know it is it is technically legal, right, to make uh, vaccines mandatory. Like states can do that. And private institutions have also historically been able to do that. Yeah, but the question is uh, not just legal, but but how you do it. And, and whether it's wise. So we had a, a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine in July where we outlined several criteria for that states and other jurisdictions should meet before they consider mandates. And none of them, uh, most of them haven't been met yet, uh, only a few of them. But that included authorization and ACIP or CDC recommendation of the vaccine, which has happened, but ensuring a stable supply, making sure it's equitable, uh, substantial, uh, post-marketing follow-up for efficacy and safety because uh, taking a vaccine is another thing. It is safe and effective uh, based on the current evidence, but mandating it has a higher burden. And then also that voluntary measures after implementing ensuring access have failed. Uh, and th none of that has happened yet. 
so we should visit uh, the option of mandating vaccines once we get to that uh, situation. Um, to sort of move on to a different question, as I mentioned in the beginning of this episode, you served on two committees that made equitable vaccine distribution recommendations to the CDC and the NIH. And I will put links to both the NASM uh, framework report and the WHO COVID-19 prioritization roadmap in the episode description so all of the listeners can read them. Uh, But for the people who haven't read the reports yet, uh, can you summarize the vaccine allocation suggestions you and others in the committees made? So there were two committees that I've had the privilege of being a part of. I continue to serve on the WHO working group uh, for the strategic advisory group of experts um, that makes uh, vaccine recommendations at the global level and the um, approaches that those global recommendations are then adapted or adopted at the country level based on each country's own circumstances. Uh, And so therefore, uh, I was very um, fortunate to be a part of that process. We, in the WHO process, we started with values um, and and explicated a a values framework and published it and said that these are the values that we will follow, including maximizing benefit, global equity, reciprocity towards healthcare workers who have uh, gone out of their way uh, to provide support, um, for patients, etc., in this pandemic, having a um, you know focus on national equity within country equity, um, legitimacy and transparency of the process, and and uh, so on and so forth. So these principles were outlined. Then they were based on these principles. They we prioritized various groups of people systematically in this multi-country group. Um, and said that who should be prioritized in line with these values. And we found that who should be prioritized is different based on how much disease you have in your country. And so there were three scenarios. One, uh, community transmission scenario, like the U.S., where ongoing transmission is happening all the time. Um, And then uh, a more concentrated, sporadic transmission scenario, and then no case scenario like New Zealand, et cetera, where they want to protect their gains. Based on those allocations, um, we had uh, these discussions. Um, uh, you know, based on these values, we had three approaches, three tables for prioritization. And I'll just focus on the community spread scenario as an example, as the, as the one that I'll focus on, because that's Uh, more critical for the U.S. kind of a scenario or countries where there's ongoing transmission, where we said that there should be a focus on preserving the most critical healthcare infrastructure and paired with reducing morbidity and mortality, reducing death and disease really earlier on. Um, And just going after that right away, um, and in the early phases of the process. Um, and in the early phases of the process, uh, focusing on the groups that are at the highest risk of death and disease, especially death, uh, that meant that along with healthcare workers, 
especially those who are exposed to a higher level of risk, uh, prioritizing the um, the elderly, uh, those who are in elder older age groups because they have high mortality. And the other reason was that you could not have enough vaccine, to be very honest, um, where to interrupt transmission. So you had to go to the groups very, very, very directly. Uh, and to focus on um, these groups uh, more directly uh, and, um, and prioritize those. But as your vaccine became available, you expanded the kind of groups uh, that you were focusing on, including essential workers and so on and so forth. And teachers um, were early priority, but not the first priority in this kind of situation because you protect death. And then you go with the uh, the group that has uh, can open up schools, etc., because young children have more um, young children have outcomes that are irreversible if they don't learn, etc. Older children and college students can make up, but if you are, uh, there's a huge developmental cost if you're not uh, in your elementary school, etc. And and that uh, becomes even exacerbated where in low-income countries where people actually sort of disenroll from schools if they fall behind and all of that stuff. So so those kinds of framework was used, uh, focus on healthcare workers and those at the highest risk of dying earlier on, then expanded to preserving other social functions, et cetera. And then if you have more vaccine, then you interrupt transmission. The focus is mortality early on in that kind of an approach. In the U.S. Uh, kind of a situation for the National Academies, it was a similar approach. But early on, the early groups included, the phase one uh, in our recommendation included um, the first responders, as well as in addition to, and we further we prioritized those in long-term care facilities more um, than all elderly, but although they were high up as well, uh, as well as those with significant risk of comorbidities. So, so that's the the kind of uh, focus we had um, in the NASM recommendations. Great, thank you. And once again, I'll make sure to put the NASM and the WHO reports in the episode description so the listeners can read and better understand them too. But um, I also want to highlight that in the report, your committee is using these guiding principles to inform your system that you uh, suggested slash created. Um, Principles like maximum benefit, equal concern, uh, mitigation of health inequities. So how and why do you think your suggestions for COVID-19 vaccine distribution, as well as the current allocation phase system the U.S. is implementing now uh, can be considered equitable? Well, by default, it can't be considered equitable. It's an attempt at equity. Um, And in the U.S., we went further when we said that within each priority group, you should use the social vulnerability index, um, the so-called social vulnerability index, which uh, takes approximately 15 variables uh, like tra- access to transportation, uh, p- proportion over 65, uh, percent over 65 in, a, uh, in an area, uh, as well as um, proportion minorities, it creates an index which identifies areas of high vulnerability. And we said, make sure the vaccines get to those people, not necessarily first, but at, the, at least at the same time, 
uh, as anyone else. It may require more effort to do that. So that's the other part. But all of those were recommendations. And you, recommendations in and of themselves do not ensure equity. It's all in operations. Uh, it's all in uh, focusing on how to actually get this done rather than sort of just advice and recommendations and frameworks. So do you do you think there is adequate transparency and attempt at mitigation of health inequities in the current allocation system that the U.S. is implementing right now? It's, it's a patchy thing. So I would say by going, so CDC now recently recommended that uh, in phase 1B, you have over 675, individuals over 75 rather than individuals over 65, um, or should be prioritized, and then the individuals over 65 should come later. The problem with that is um, uh, people of color don't live as long as uh, Caucasian Americans, as white, as much as white Americans. And so therefore, if the cutoff it as 65 and above, you, you prevent a lot more deaths uh, in everyone, including the minorities. If the cutoff is at 75, you prevent... Um, only you prevent deaths more in white Americans. You also prevent some deaths in, uh, in people of color. So these kinds of things, I think we need improvement. The other thing is we need to have operationalized access uh, at the very, very micro level using social vulnerability index and so on and so forth. So in the NASM report, uh, one of the committee's recommendations was also for the U.S. to commit to a leadership role in the equitable allocation of COVID-19 vaccine globally. So in your eyes, has the U.S. done this far, uh, does done this so far? If so, in what ways? And do you feel like the U.S. and other countries have done a good job of communicating and learning from one another? So I think um, learning from one, one another, I think it's a, it's a work in progress. Um, but in terms of... Um, committing resources for equitable distribution and deployment of vaccines around the world. Um, so far, a lot of countries had ponied up resources and the U.S. was um, conspicuous uh, by its absence on the world stage in terms of funding uh, this COVAX, the so-called COVAX facility, which is run by WHO and the Global um, Alliance for Vaccine and Immunization and a few other entities that is um, aiming to just allocate vaccines across countries and so on and so forth. Uh, so that is uh, one um, measure of, um, of, of how countries can contribute as global citizens. So the U.S. hadn't been a part of that. In the new bill that was just signed uh, by the president and was initiated by Congress, there is substantial money for that. So that's a really good sign. And there have been indications from the incoming administration to broader engagement and broader support of uh, of the vaccinations effort globally. I wish it had happened four or five months ago because the more time you have to plan, the better it is, but, but uh, better late than never. I also want to talk about the uh, vaccine uh, allocation system in the U.S. where states ultimately decide, you know, how to allocate the vaccine and who qualifies as an essential worker, for example. So do you think this state-driven system is efficient? And has the system historically been used in uh, public health emergencies? And where did it originate? And why was it chosen in the first place? 
Well, that's because states, uh, th- that's based on who we are as a country. It's a federal system. Um, and health, um, and especially at the micro level, public health has a huge, huge uh, involvement of states and local jurisdictions. Um, and so that's the, the, the nature of the system of governance we have. But it has benefits, a lot of benefits as well. That means there is intimate local knowledge. You don't have someone flying in from Washington trying to figure things out. Do you have local knowledge, local engagement with communities on an ongoing basis? Uh, so that's that has advantages. Uh, but having an, a system where there was a stronger uh, federal coordination would have substantially, substantially helped. And an early release of priorities, an early indication of you know who comes for a second would have given states the time to prepare. Um, and so that's another major thing that we need to think about as we uh, go on um, thinking about uh, how to improve the system and so on and so forth. And do you think that uh, you know the federal government, state governments, and state organizations and institutions, for example, nursing homes, hospitals, clinics, do you think all of those you know, entities have had good communication with one another thus far? Well, I think, again, if we, if, the, if we had started the planning earlier on, we would have had the ability to communicate more frequently, more intimately, more closely, uh, and more efficiently. Um, all of a sudden, it dawned on us as if as a country that uh, vaccines need to be delivered, although we could have done that planning earlier on. Um, so I would say... Um, there's room for improvement. Things are likely to improve, um, but 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 you know we could have done things better. Well, one of the other things is that all um, vaccination programs have, all public health programs have teething issues. So so this is you know that's part of the reason why we are seeing uh, some of the hiccups in the programs. I see. And also looking forward, what kinds of higher level measures do you think the Biden administration needs to take to slow the spread of COVID-19 and reduce morbidity and mortality? And also judging from their pre-presidency plans thus far, what specific things do you think this administration will do differently uh, versus the Trump administration to combat COVID-19? I would say that have a national, nationally coordinated response and help states micro plan together uh, learn from each other's experiences do trouble help facilitate troubleshooting state troubleshooting push out money early earlier on uh, uh, so push out money um, that was that has been allocated to through Congress so the states can hire things people quickly so that um, they can sort out their IT uh, bottlenecks and so on and so forth great. And also another thing is that we learned back in September that a new variant of the coronavirus was detected in the UK, and now it's already been found in the US. What do people need to know about this new strain of COVID-19? And what does this new variant mean for virus transmission and deaths and also the vaccines that are at play right now? So good news and bad news. Uh, The good news is that it doesn't seem to cause more mortality um, or more severe disease than the usual strain. The bad news, and which is not, which is more, looks even worse if you 
think about it, um, is is the fact that it, tr- it seems to be transmitting. So the current evidence suggests that it seems to be transmitting more efficiently, and that's concerning because even if the it's the same level of lethality, if more people get it, uh, you you you're gonna have more problems. The the, the somewhat good news is. Uh, that a lot of the measures that we have used so far, if we do it well, we can halt the rise, uh, although we need to have more uh, compliance with them, those measures. And even better news is that it seems that the vaccines are likely to work against this variant as effectively as the other ones. So we have a dark tunnel. We've got a little bit longer, uh, but the light at the end of the tunnel hasn't gone away. Right. So you would say it's sort of a waiting game to see what happens? No, it is a waiting game in the sense that we should vaccinate people and we should follow the public health advice. So mm-hmm. we have a way out of this, but it is indeed concerning uh, what we what we saw. Right. And people have been saying that, you know, COVID-19, it'll have lasting effects on the economy, the state of the world. Um how do you think our generation and also future generations will be impacted by COVID-19 years down the road? Well, I think uh, I can't predict when, in all the detail in, in which your generation will uh, be impacted. But I can say that adversity can forge some of the most resilient group of people. Um, and so I hope that's the silver lining of it. The other thing is that you all have a unique responsibility um, and the unique responsibility to make sure that the lessons of this pandemic are not lost on future generations. Remember, these kinds of large events that are one in 50 year events or one in 100 year events require our collective memory. It would be a huge, huge lost opportunity. There would be a huge tragedy that in 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and, and, and a pandemic is likely to happen before that, but then the big one may happen you know, with unpredictable f- frequency a little bit later, uh, where your generation will be in charge. You will be uh, presidents, prime ministers, senators, university professors, etc. But you intuitively remember the value of, um, of good governance, value of valuing science, uh, uh, the, the value of uh, agility in your response, um, and, and the value of compassion. Um, uh, and, and so I hope these values are transmitted uh, to your peers through future generations, through you. Um, and so I would say in the end, no pressure. <laughs> um, Dr. Omer, last question. Are there any last words or pieces of advice relating to COVID-19 or the pandemic that you want to give to the listeners? No. So I would say uh, continue to follow public health guidance. It's not an infinite um, situation where you will, we will be, the recommendation would be to social distance, minimize travel, um, wear a mask, uh, avoid large gatherings, especially indoor gatherings, etc. All of that is not a permanent state of situation. Um, and so therefore, there will be, uh, we will not go back to 100% normal. Uh, the 20, 2019 is not coming back, but we will get to a pretty good, solid 
new normal uh, where we will be able to uh, revert to the core functions of the society as humans. Um, and and so, so this is a time-bound sacrifice that all of us have to make. And the more um, acute um, and the more intensive the, our efforts now, the better dividends we will um, we will have. So, you know, in other words, this too shall pass. Great. Thank you so much, Dr. Omer, for your time and your insights today in the podcast. Uh, before you go, where can people find you if they're interested in learning more about your work or asking you any questions? So I sort of, um, I've increased my presence on social media to, to engage on some of these questions um, publicly so uh, or sort of share the information. Um, so I am, uh, you know, I'm available on Saad Omer 3 uh, on Twitter. So that's my handle, S-A-A-D-O-M-E-R 3. And you can follow me on that. Amazing. Thank you so much, Dr. Omer, for being on the podcast. And I'll also make sure to link your Twitter in the episode description so people can easily access that. Um, to the listeners, thank you so much for listening. Of course, there are always more questions I could have asked, but honestly, I tried not to overlap too much with the uh, interviews and presentations Dr. Omer has already done. Look him up on YouTube if you want to see some of those. I will also link a short Q&A he did with Senator Chris Murphy that covers some of the more basic but still important questions about COVID-19 in the episode description as well. I also put together a resources document that includes a bunch of articles I referenced and used when I was researching for this episode. Um, but honestly, people are publishing articles every hour, every minute about COVID-19. So I'm sure, you know, they're already outdated or they'll be outdated soon. So make sure you do your own searching to ensure you're getting the most accurate and relevant information. But uh, I just wanted to compile that just in case you wanted to do some more research into specific things I referenced today. But thank you all so much for listening. Please stay safe and remember to take proper precautions when you go outside. Take care of one another. I'm rooting for you. And I will see you all next Saturday with an episode with John Huang on his story and on political action and civic engagement.